Yes, hello again, everyone. Welcome back to None But the Brave, a part of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. Flynn, so we were hoping for an archive release for this episode, but no dice. No dice. Um, gives us another week to really enjoy Berkeley some more. <laughs> I had a really good run tonight with uh, listening to the first set, so I was very okay with that. It's a good one, no doubt. Yes, it is. I mean, I'm I'm still very blown away by the by the clarity of it and just how good Clarence sounds. And it's just just really really a, a great one. Well, hopefully this month will be almost as good. I doubt it'll be to the same <laughs> level as Berkeley. Well, it would t- it would take another 78 or or an 81 show to 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 do that. That's for sure. <laughs> well, let's see what they come up with. What we're gonna do is we'll hop on, even though this is our season finale. We do want to cover the archive, so we'll do like a mini episode of five to seven minutes with our thoughts once they release it. Same thing in August. And September. Yes. And we'll be back in the fall. But we've got a big show here to wrap things up for our second season. Unbelievable. We've already done like 40 episodes. Yeah, that's been a, that's a lot of episodes, I guess. That's what we did during the pandemic. We uh, we really focused on the, on the podcast. Yes, we did. And... Very excited about tonight's episode. We, of course, had the four men responsible for Backstreet's magazine over the 40-year history. This is going to be part two of that discussion, and let's get right into it. So once again, Flynn, would you like to do the honors? I would. Charles R. Cross, he uh, founded Backstreet's magazine in 1980. He uh, handed out copies of the, of the first issue at Springsteen's October 24th show, October 24th, 1980 show in Seattle. Uh, he went on to edit The Rocket, Seattle's music newspaper, and uh, he wrote biographies of uh, Kirk Cobain and Jimi Hendrix, as well as the, the Backstreet Springsteen book and uh, Led Zeppelin and Hart. Uh, Charlie, it is an honor. It is an honor to welcome you to the podcast. You are welcome here. Very glad to yes. be here. Thank you. Uh, Eric Flanagan, he joined Backstreet's in 1986. Uh, he worked with Charlie as managing editor until about 1991. Eric had a hand in the hardback Backstreet Springsteen book as well, released in 1989, and also co-authored the, the Led Zeppelin book with Charlie. And uh, he's gone on to a career in electronic media and now works in the music business. Eric, glad to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Flynn. Then after Eric moved to LA in 1981, Jonathan Pont came on for two years, managing the magazine through the Human Touch and Lucky Town era. Afterwards, he went on to work in the business press uh, for about a decade in New York and He's now a certified financial planner. Jonathan, welcome back to the None But The Brave podcast. It's good to be here. It's nice to be with everyone. And in 1993, Jonathan, Jonathan and Charlie welcomed Chris Phillips to Backstreet's. Chris moved to Seattle after college, and uh, he sent a little note to Backstreet's just to say hello and see if he can contribute. And uh, he did. Uh, by the late 1990s, he had taken over the entire business, and he has, he's navigated Backstreet's into the Internet age. Chris, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Okay, so on to part two of our discussion with the guys from Backstreets. We pick up with Eric talking about his adventures out on the road as the voice of the Backstreets boss hotline. I I, I also have to shout out that when I was uh, fortunate enough to travel and follow the Tunnel of Love tour, you know, we, we famously on the hotline put out word that I needed places to stay. And so in market after market in the country, I would roll into town and meet a Backstreet subscriber and fan who would feed me and put me up for the night, sometimes would help me get tickets. And, you know, I just had this crazy rolling adventure across America, like spending two days in somebody's life and then moving on to the next town. And, you know, just today on Facebook, I saw Ed Gray, who I met in Dallas, who took care of me. We went to the Austin show together. He was posting about making barbecue ribs for his neighbor kid and, he lives in Phoenix now. And I'm like, I met that guy in 1988 and I still am connected to him today from that trip. So, you know, that the community got very, became not, you know, we went from printing to talking to people on the phone to like, I'm sleeping in their bunk bed. Wow. It's really a testament to what you guys built because Bruce himself to many of the fans, of course, is inaccessible and you guys are, are there at, and you became sort of the symbol of this community and that's why people were taking you in because they wanted to be a part of it. There was a little bit of that, Hal. There was a, like, we were, you know, we, we were not choosing to be proxies, but by default, we sort of were, 
you know, like somebody you could talk to who could geek out with you about the fandom. And, you know, Ed posted recently on Facebook and like he remembered me rolling into town and I had all these great tapes with me. And I'd kind of forgotten that I was sort of like an ambassador bringing like bootlegs along the way. But Ed was like, you know, I made his life that night. He spent all, he stayed up all night, like copying tapes that I brought for him. So um, yeah, we were some extension of that next level of fandom and artistry and knew a lot about the music and people wanted more. And there I was in person for 24 hours, giving them just a little bit more. And I will say, not to sound defensive to when Chris was talking about the organization and their respect for journalists, the organization was not always cooperative with Backstreets. Mm-hmm. Pre-2000, they were not. And Bruce was not, the organization was not sending us press releases before they came out. It was the opposite, despite the fact that these were journalists. And there was more, there, there, as Eric said, there was this whole idea of what, what's a fanzine and what's that mean for us. And, um, uh, but some of that proxy was because the organization was, they, they were not fan friendly through no. 2000. No. Um, and maybe even later it could be argued. And uh, they became that way. And some of that had to do with Bruce's waning mainstream popularity um, to some degree, um, but he remained uh, as popular as ever with the fans and, and Backstreet's had connected with those people. And uh, I mean, uh, Pearl Jam is a great example from the start. They, they, they had that dialed in from day one um, and they mirrored some of their uh, fan club after Backstreet's. We knew those guys, they, mm-hmm. they knew what we were doing with Backstreet's and they, the, the Pearl Jam 10 club is, is a ripoff, uh, uh, a much more high-priced merchandise and money-making uh, oh. ripoff than ever could possibly be. But it essentially is taking the model they saw at Backstreets and applying it to a band from the start. You know, pretty much not from the start, but maybe from th- two years in the fan- the Ten Club started. Um, maybe two years after Pearl Jam. So in many many uh, organizations now are much more fan supportive, you know, than they were years ago. So things have shifted in terms of that. But, but uh, some of that is that people did want to connect to community. And, uh, you know, the E Street Band always were more connected to fans than Bruce himself as well, because they were larger than life personalities. Clarence Clemens met more Bruce fans than Bruce will ever meet in his entire life because he, he, he loved connecting to people. He loved that part of it. And he had that personality. Bruce is a much more inward person. So to some degree, I, when I, what I said before about Bruce's personality and not being, is a, he can't even be aware of that. Um, I, I do think that's a, that is a testament to the artistry, but Bob Dylan also does not hang out with fans after a show. Um, and uh, that we're probably better for that. If we hung out with Bob Dylan, we might like Blonde on Blonde less um, if that could be possible. I don't think maybe that's possible, but maybe it is. I have another question about the, go back to the magazine itself. Was there, um, there was that, the, the infamous drought between Tunnel and, and Human Touch and, and Lucky Town. Was mm-hmm. it, how was it putting together a magazine during that time when, except for those two Christic shows, nothing was going on? <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, look, that, that was the heyday of my time uh, at the helm at Backstreets. And yeah, we were putting out issues on a regular basis. There was post-tunnel, you know, uh, there was a, a, a modicum of activity. There were a few one-off, you know, guest appearance, that kind of gig. Obviously, we made a meal out of like Bruce showing up at the Arizona Biker Bar. And, you know, like, you know, there were times. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. We, you know, so we but I think the other thing that happened in that period, and I have to go back and look at the issues, is we we got into the like retrospective game. Right. Let's go back and take a long look at this thing that happened previously. And again, kind of like started to. I don't know, to some degree, like create a template for how we could look back and do retrospectives on particular eras or particular shows and how you would 
kind of like get in and, and have something new to say about those things in, in hindsight or going back to the tapes or what have you. And, you know, we made up the trivia contest. We did a fantasy box set. You know, we played a lot of like classic fan games. And, you know, some of those things, again, became a little bit prophetic. You know, this predates tracks and all that stuff where we're kind of like speculating and guessing on what would be on Bruce's own. You know, I think at the time it was like a Bob Dylan biograph was the model or the I guess it was the boot, the first bootleg series for Dylan. But, you know, yeah, we were like finding new ways to go through the past. And I think, again, some of those templates are things that we're still playing around with and using to this day. Yeah, I'm looking and thumbing through the bound issues and, you know, uh, it's it's funny to look at where we have multiple headlines of stories. New album soon, question mark. And, uh, uh, you know, we're pulling out, you know, I mean, I can't believe we ever wrote an article on human touch outtakes. Uh, oh, wow. You know, um, that that's in and, and lots more stuff on bootlegs and live recordings. We have Lynn Elder right. writing a history of live recordings here and, you know, more reader comments and, and, you know, but that's when we finally get an, ac- an album in, in 1991 and we write 10 issues, uh, 10 pages on that album. And then Bruce tours and it essentially when Bruce is touring, the whole magazine was the tour. Um, we could eat up every page with that, but uh, it was definitely harder in that dry spell. And, uh, um, you know, it's a different world now, 20 years later, 25 years later, when there's new live releases that can come out constantly. And it's, it's not like you're waiting for something to happen, but there was a sense then of what's Bruce's next direction. Where is this, where's this going? And he certainly had a lot of surprises and still does. I, I gotta say, you know, of the last four or five, well, the last 10 records there, there are three or four of them that are just complete takes that I didn't think we'd ever see. Um, going off in, in, in directions that I wasn't sure we would ever see out of him. He's, he isn't predictable in terms of the artistic mm-hmm. output, but he's also not predictable in terms of, you know, how often releases are going to come out. So it was always a, a goldmine when someone said, hey, we have this previously unpublished interview with Bruce from 1980. And, I don't think that happened very often, but a lot of times we were tracking down magazines like, we reprinted a story from Crawdaddy. We reprinted something from Cream. Stories that. that from from out of print magazines and and dealing some pictures that, again, were pre-internet where people wouldn't have even seen a picture. Um, it does seem absurd, mm-hmm. but we had to pay a lot of money at times to get some of those photos. Uh, yeah. You know, the Backstreet's book, which again seems like so ancient to barely be talking about it. We had to a lot of those photographs, like the David Gar photos. You know, I, I've literally paid less for a car than I paid for some of those, but it seemed so important to get these images that hadn't been seen before. And now the internet, in the way it changed photography, you know, there's there's never a picture that that hasn't been reproduced a thousand times. And I think that point of like, you know, how do you go back to the past? I mean, that, as we as we started to do in the magazine, it's that recognition of like, hey people didn't see the darkness tour or the born to run tour, or, you know, now they didn't see the river tour, the born the essay tour. And certainly as, you know, as I approach like the archive series essays, one of the things I'm always trying to do is to like help contextualize what was going on at that time for that person who wasn't there and didn't know, you know, and I think all that just goes back to like the old, what we used to do at Backstreet's and the way that we used to try to, you know, resurrect the past and, and kind of contextualize it in the present. Right. One of the first things that I worked on, well, I came on right after the 93 tour ended. So the Christian mm. Carr show happened and all that. And then I came in and that was another doldrums period, you know, through the rest of 93 and 94. Um, I mean, speaking of making a meal, we made a meal of the, uh, the prodigal son thing that oh, yeah. hardly ever even came out. You know, that was a big two-parter. There was streets of Philadelphia in there, um, but there wasn't much else. So one of the things we did in 94 uh, was a big Born in the USA retrospective, you know, 10 years later. And that's the issue that has the, uh, uh, the fold-out spread of Bruce as Captain America, which, you know, I, I have mixed feelings on later. But if you think that was only 10 years later, like if we were to do that now, it'd be like for Wrecking Ball, you know? Um, <laughs> that's amazing. But yeah, at that point, a 10-year retrospective um, 
felt like a good thing to do and i think it was and, and that continued on you know on to like jp's 10-year retrospective on christic and then yep. um jp also did one on on the vet show from 81 we and based an entire episode of the podcast on that yeah right True. so yeah you you know well so yeah i mean i i think um I think that that started when, when Eric was talking about and that continues to be more and more like, yeah, people weren't there. People weren't there now for the reunion tour. You know, there are people who yeah. weren't there. Um, yeah, you know, it's kind of trite. Time flies, but it's true. Like I yeah. hear from a lot of people who came on as of Wrecking Ball. You know, No, it is mind boggling to think that the reunion tour ended more than 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's. Well, I will say I, I enjoyed your guys' episode with Dan French immensely. Dan, you know, I've been oh, fortunate to, to know for a long time. But even though I've known him forever, to hear him literally like, all right, I'm going to walk you through first person going to Frankfurt was incredible to like understand. And, and like, I just like it really made the European tour vivid for me. And the way he talked about the UK shows and forgetting how small some of those places were and how the set changed and Jungle Land coming in like, I kind of lost track of all that stuff. And Dan just put it all right back into the present for me. Yeah, he was an absolute great storyteller. Yes. Yeah. We did, we, we just, I mean, better he, than he, us. Way better than yeah, us. I agree. Yeah, I agree with that too. If you're listening yeah. to this, just stop now. Go back to that. Keep listening. Run away. <laughs> well, just oh. like uh, what we were saying about Clarence. I mean, Clarence died on my mom's birthday. Uh, so I remember the date, but that's 10 years yeah um, next next week up. yeah well yeah. and June 18th. Uh, 10 days away mm. yeah and uh you know that seems like that was yesterday um and uh you know i yeah i mean time does fly and uh uh i think just like a lot of times i get asked a lot of questions about the early seattle music scene by people who can't even imagine what that must have been like and if I were to say, it's, it's the same for Bruce. It was smaller than anybody imagines in their mind. It was um, less, less. Uh, it, it didn't feel as magical in the moment as it even did after the fact, frankly. Uh, and, um, and, and there was, a, there was a, an energy and a smell to it that will never be captured in any print or audio. The way that a concert smelled after Bruce played in 1975, it, 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 it smelled like human sweat, the whole theater. Um, and uh, I, I don't go to a concert at Key Arena in, in, in now Climate Pledge Arena where Bruce played that show in 1980. It's never gonna smell like that again because it's gonna mm -hmm. be cleaned up and it's not gonna be a hockey rink that they put folding chairs on. Um, it's just not, it's it's a fancy ass uh, place filled with you know set seats. There there just isn't quite that that same that 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 world of what rock and it wasn't just Bruce. The Who show smelled like that too. And but that will never be captured you know again to some degree. So I don't recall, guys. What year did Bruce first talk the Backstreets? Two thousand four. That was for the vote for change. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean that had been. That had been a, a goal of mine, a dream of mine to to make that happen. And uh, yeah, it's basically more than 10 years into my time at Backstreet's before, um, before we finally got to talk. But yeah, 2004. It had been a dream of mine and Eric's and John as well. <laughs> well yeah, I know, I know. That I know. To that. Uh, no, but really like almost a quarter century of Backstreet's until we got the Springsteen interview, you know? Um, and I remember when I called to tell Charlie about it, like, I, I felt a little guilty, you know, like, <laughs> um, I was ex both excited and also, um, was cognizant that he might want to punch me in the face, you know? No, but, uh, no, no, no punching and no punching involved. Um, <laughs> well, it's funny how that came about. I think, I mean, part of it is that, you know, doing vote for change, I think was kind of, tricky territory politically and so he wanted to speak maybe more directly to his fan base than he had before and that was a good way to do it um but i also think it's one of those things where patty scalfa was promoting i guess it was 23rd street lullaby that summer 
and um, Columbia, this was sort of when the first instance of us doing this kind of thing, like um, connecting fans and the label or, or fans and the tour operation to get people into shows like storytellers and spectacle. The first time it happened was for Patty. Um, she was going to be on a morning show and they were going to just bring in some people off the street to be her audience. And she said, oh, can't we get fans there who know my music? And so Columbia called us and asked if we'd like to have some con kind of contest or something to, to get fans in to see her show. And so we did, you know, that's, that's easy, right? Like, hey, who wants to go, you know, see Patty Scalfa, it's free, just show up. And so we provided the 300 people or whatever it was for that. And there was a meet and greet afterwards. And uh, Patty was thrilled with how it turned out because she had like this big crowd of people who were all singing along to her songs as opposed to people who didn't know what was going on. And she was thrilled. And um, she turned to me afterwards. She said, everybody was so great. It was so great to have people here who knew my stuff. And uh, have you ever met Bruce? <laughs> like what? Uh, Bruce was not there. I had not seen him there. Um, and she said, you've never met him? Oh, well, he's backstage with me. Come on back now. And it completely came out of left field. Had no idea uh, that he was there at all. Um, and yeah, it totally threw me. But I like, okay, here we go. I'm going to meet Bruce Springsteen for the first time. And um, I think, I, I don't think it's, it's an accident that it was like a month after meeting Bruce face-to-face -face that, the the interview opportunity happened i think it was a chance for him to see okay these guys made my wife happy seems like he's not crazy and he didn't you know try to rip my clothing off or anything like that maybe this is something we can do um and so yeah the call came in well the call came in actually literally after we had packed up the entire backstreet's office to move it from washington dc down to chapel hill it's like the absolute worst time that this wonderful thing could possibly happen. The phone was literally sitting on the floor because there was no more table at the Backstreet's office anymore. Phone rang, I picked it up and it was Shorefire saying, would you like to interview Bruce Springsteen? I'm like, yeah, well, as long as it's not in the next 24 hours because it's me in a car and a moving truck for a little while. But the first thing we did when we opened up the office in Chapel Hill, where we've now been for 17 years was to take the call from Bruce not too far after that you did the storytellers tickets yeah yeah um and, and you know to me that was just i mean you know i think we all shared a similar frustration over the years like why aren't these things happening why don't why can't we have a better relationship with with springsteen or or his label or anything like that because we're all on the same side here we're all into the same thing and so it really um, it just felt like finally, yes, you need fans for a show. You want bodies and seats for storytellers who are going to be really excited to be there. Well, we've, we've got a million of them. So we're happy to help, you know? And so that happened for storytellers and that happened for uh, spectacle with Elvis Costello carousel. and that happened for the carousel house. And, you know, sometimes that has been um, a double-edged sword. You know, I think, when you've got 50 slots for a show that, you know, 50,000 people want to go to, you know, some people are going to get angry when they, when they don't get in, but that's just, you know, a matter of numbers. I've been really happy that, that we're able to like connect, you know, it's like BTX connecting people with tickets or connecting people with opportunities. That's been a really cool thing that, um, that I'm glad finally started to happen. Yeah, personally, one thing I'd like to see, I mean, and in, in for a while, it looked like with COVID, maybe this would happen is that people would have to have an ID to get into a show with a ticket. And yeah, if you bought a ticket and you can't go, you're out the hundred bucks. But it that happened a little bit on a couple shows the last couple months, but likely that's now already gone away. But the idea of something that could defeat scalpers, anything and get tickets into the hands of fans if if that happened in the future i mean to some degree that's part of the backstreet's idea is let's get people who care about this show i mean i the the very first uh concert where backstreets was handed out is it october 24th 1980 am i remembering yeah. the date yeah. right mm -hmm. 
and I had front row tickets. And, and the reason I had front row tickets is because I went to the right ticket outlet and was just lucky and bought um, front row tickets, dead center. And um, the people sitting next to us left 20 minutes into the show, just left. And that idea, I've seen that happen a few times over the years where it's, you know, whatever, they, they thought they were seeing something else. What did they think they were doing? Or, you know, now you have kids, you go, well, maybe there was a crisis. Who knows? But who knows why two people in the front row of Bruce Springsteen in 1980 left? I can't imagine that. But they might have been given the tickets or bought. Who knows? Who knows? But part of the idea of Backstreets is to make it so the people that want to be there are there and they don't get up and leave because there's a good Simpsons episode that's on, you know, Hulu that night. I don't know, but it, 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 you know, I, I, I've, I've also been at at concerts that I thought were great where just morons talked that that's one of our, all of us who've ever tried to tape a show is a big problem that the people were there were there for the socialization, not for the, the music um, to some degree. Yeah. One of the greatest things, I mean, you know, well, there's so many things we can look back at in terms of things we put out or done on the web, but I'm thinking about, Charlie, the uh, the book you wrote, 50 Guaranteed Tips to Great Springsteen Tickets, which is still <laughs> Eric, so great. Eric and John, I think, had a little bit of help with that, I think. <laughs> oh, it's, okay. in yeah. yes, it's in the Library of Congress. It's in the Library of Congress. There's no there's no ISBN number, but that's still a fine publication. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it really is, is you know, like... Uh, and, and zero, zero of those tickets work in an era of StubHub, but uh, um, but yeah, it uh, yeah, it was really hard to get into ticket shows. I mean, you know, I've I I uh, I remember going to Madison Square Garden on the the tunnel tour, and um, uh, a friend of mine who will go nameless here uh, bought said he had tickets for me. And uh, he had bought them and we walked in and, and we went to sit in our seats and somebody was there and there's huge hubbub came and he had bought them. They were bootleg, I mean, scalp tickets, but they were counterfeit. And in that era, there were lots of that kind of thing. There were Very such common. Demand. And then you go to sit in a seat and then that there's something just wrong about that all the way around. And uh, it was, uh, that show was just a disaster. Um, to to try to the demand for Bruce at that point, and I don't know how you serve that demand. Like right now, if Bruce goes on the road for something other than Broadway, what? How many seats could he sell in New Jersey? Well, how big is the biggest theater stadium in New Jersey? You know, uh, mm-hmm. whatever it is, he can sell that right there, or in England, or in Italy. How do you serve those people? I don't know. I don't know the answer, but. To some degree, Backstreet still serves a way to at least get people aware of that information and and uh, be up on it and communicate. Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz from Numb But The Brave, and I want to tell you about our exciting new sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid is a service for musicians that puts your music into online stores and streaming services like Spotify. You keep 100% of your royalties. The DistroKid app is packed with features. You can check your streaming stats from Apple and Spotify, Upload lyrics and song credits. You can also get notified via push notifications when you've earned royalties. With Mixia, a powerful tool for those without access to professional mastering engineers, users can put the finishing touches on their track in minutes. There's a simple interface that is easy to use even if you're a novice creator. It's only $99 for a year with unlimited mastered tracks. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely. Send tracks to collaborators, booking agents, and anyone else you want to hear your work. Your music will stream at the highest quality so you can make a great impression. And the artwork files look great, too. So check out DistroKid through None But The Brave's special link and receive 30% off your first year. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Once again, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Thank you. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. 
Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. You guys also put out the, the Lynn, El- Lynn Elder's two books. Three I books. Know. Three Sorry. books. I did not know that. You can look. She was prolific. <laughs> <laughs> she did fine work. Lynn Elder's spirit is with us tonight. That's true. So, so people really got into the, to those uh, reviews at the time, huh? Oh, I did. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the bootleg, uh, you're talking about to these like dry periods that we were describing, you know, post-tunnel, pre-Human Touch Lucky Town or after that and before we get to Joe, like bootlegs are what sustain people. And there was when the bootleg CD that, you know, you think about the timing of the bootleg CD revolution, it's right in those gaps, right? The tunnel tour is the first one that has a bootleg CD originating from it um and you know how do you again buyer beware we're talking about like helping fans with tickets there are a lot of terrible bootlegs out there and they were very expensive and people would buy them and be disappointed so there felt like an opportunity to give people a guide to which bootlegs were good and which bootlegs were bad and lynn elder uh which may not be a real person uh (laughs) Lynn Elder, that name was actually chosen uh, by opening the Seattle phone book to a page, putting a finger down on a name, and the name that my finger landed on was Lynn Elder. So uh, Lynn Elder became the author of those books, just to be a little careful. But yeah, we were just trying to help people understand uh, which ones were good and which ones were bad. And you did. And if anybody cares, here's one of those uh, books. And, uh, um, you know, one star titles, the Agora Club Cleveland Fire on the Fingertips. I thought Fire on the Fingertips was awesome when I first got it because it was on fancy pizza colored vinyl, but it sucks. And, uh, you know, um, you just you just didn't know. And and I was a fan and I, I paid a lot of money on for some vinyl that wasn't very good. And then I listened to... Um, you know, the Saint, the Incident and the Main Point Shuffle. And I heard what still could be argued, maybe was one of the greatest shows that Bruce Springsteen ever played and recorded. And it was like, holy, I can't believe this. And, and if I could go back to any show mm. and sit in it, it might be that. Um, what would you guys jump off if, I mean, there obviously are great moments. Sitting in the Roxy would have been great, but still the, the Main Point would have been a different vibe and smaller than any of the other clubs we're talking about too. Um, so you, you had a time machine question back in that during the drought. So let's, you guys ask the fans, let's have the editors uh, give their answers now. I mean, John, that one is you... pretty, uh, sorry, that one, I'm going to go that, that one's incredibly hard to argue with Charlie. It is that transitional time, you know, before born to run, I would be extraordinarily happy to be there. But when you, when, when you just asked the question, the place I went to is, is March 25th, 1977 at the Boston Music Hall. There's just something about that show, the last show before darkness, the, the, the 77 tour with the horns, don't look back in the set action in the streets, higher and higher, you know, it just the release and the like, Oh my God, the future is beginning of that show is uh, if there's any show I wish I could be at, it's probably that one. And that would be a funner show to be in. I mean, in some ways, the the main point show feels melancholy to me. It's <laughs> got a lot of sadness to I it. I want you. It, yeah. yeah, it really is. Whereas that show you're describing is like, it, it, it really, it feels, it still feels like it's the born to run energy of a young man mm-hmm. on stage, you know? Yeah. Jonathan? Probably the second night in Stockholm in 81. Mm. And mostly because I've, I've been listening to it recently with uh, the celebration of the 40th anniversary. But to be there and uh, be able to sort of participate in that moment where Bruce looked out and, and really figured out how to unlock uh, the key to a new audience and a new experience for him. Um, and the band played just beautifully. And uh, that's probably the one I would go to. But Charlie, I, 
The main point seventy-five. That's um, <laughs> you know, drop me off. Drop me off there after Stockholm. I'll meet you in Bryn Mawr. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could go with any of those. I will say I kind of have a conundrum because I recently wrote down uh, my Time Machine show for the introduction I wrote for Barry Schneier's book. And Mm -hmm. I said that May 9th, 1974 at the Harvard Square Theater was my Time Machine show, Uh, which I meant when I wrote it. But I also think it's one of those things like, you know, at that time, I meant it. (laughs) At the time, Nebraska was my favorite album. Today, I'd say Tunnel, whatever it is. but I also, I don't want to say Christic because these guys were all there and that seems sad. You weren't <laughs> sitting next show. to, was it Sheena Easton or the- Yeah, Sheena was, Easton was Sheena right Easton behind. Sheena Easton and Elizabeth Berkeley were within two or three seats of us and both of them were, Elizabeth Berkeley was less of a problem than Sheena, no, Sheila E, not no, Sheena No, 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 it was Sheena Easton. Oh, Sheena, right Sheena the first Easton. Time. Yeah, I'm more was, surprised if it was Sheila E. But she was <laughs> Sheena Easton was not happy that somebody who will also go nameless was trying to take some photographs during that show. So. Yeah, oh, gosh. Well, she must have been a passenger in the back seat of uh, a car on the road <laughs> on the way there. But and we're uh, still we're still all friendly with uh, Elizabeth Berkeley's brother. Did somebody share that? Sure As in are. Jason Berkeley's sister. Friend of the show. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Very close. Yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, uh, that Christic show is all, also hard to beat. You know, if I could go back and re-see a show that I saw, mm. it might be that show because it, at the time, it, it it was hard to know what was really happening or were you seeing the start of an era or a one-off? And frankly, you were seeing a one-off or a two-off. Uh, it it you were not seeing it, it 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 to me really does feel like an end of an era. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, Charlie, on that on that point, the, the, the only way to really get the value out of what you just said is you'd have to like take some pill that erased your memory so you could experience it for the first time. Because there was something about that show that was about not knowing what was going to happen. And I've never been in, even though I've seen Bruce shows where things that were unexpected occurred and that was amazing. The Christic was an entire night where you had absolutely no fucking idea what he was going to play. And that, and, and it's why to this day, it is the greatest the opening night of the Christic is the best Bruce Springsteen uh, concert I ever attended because it was the, it was the most in the moment experience any of us could have ever had. You just didn't know he had never done it. And, you know, it defied all expectations. And That's, then am I, am I right? Did we have a party the night of the first show or the night of the second show? <laughs> I think it's the night of the first show. It uh, is. Yeah. And it's crazy. We rent this big Ramada hotel Inn. suite. Yeah, it's motel suite. Inn, exactly. But it's yeah. the nicest suite of the Ramada Inn. And uh, in West Hollywood on Hollywood. Santa Monica Boulevard. It was where the Tropicana Hotel used to be. I met Tom Waits in that hotel, if I'm remembering correctly. I think it's the exact location there. It's just west of uh, La Cienega. So. Yep. And uh, in any case, we have this weird hotel suite and everybody comes to a party. And, and it, what was amazing is that, you know, just you're talking to everybody about the show. It was, it was, uh, it, it was, and God, when did we go to bed? And then we've got another show coming up, you know, immediately. Yeah, um, yeah that was a crazy period of, uh, but yeah, it was you. And then the next night you're like, is this next show going to be, is the next Christic show going to be entirely different? And it was, but not as, you know, it certainly wasn't the same as seeing the first night. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I will make Christic my time machine show, but only if I can come to your party. If I can come to your (laughs) motel party. The Ramada Inn is the place to have a party. There's a dress code, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) No, that party has been brought up to me dozens of times in the last 30 years like it it was a and it, you know it's funny because those of you who didn't live in Seattle we we did some community outreach we had some we actually had a Charlie was it a monthly party we would throw at one we point? did a sure. monthly party at like a pizza place yeah and we would play live Springsteen I think we even sh- at some point we showed some fan shot a bootleg video of the Christic and I remember we premiered that like a month or two after the Christic show so people who didn't get to see the show got to see it and those became like little social events 
in and of themselves with people who were local to Seattle who wanted to meet some other fans who were Backstreet subscribers. So those were, and we did one in Austin, I remember. Um, we did one in New York City even. Yeah, we did one in New York. They were great. Less well attended is the one in Seattle, you know, or the Austin one. Yeah, I, that's, it's crazy to think about, but mm -hmm. yeah. Always community though, you know, like always looking for ways to, to pull people in. Bruce Springsteen has the best fans. We're talking about all this other stuff, but that's the one thing that isn't about us um, or about Backstreets that just needs to be said. He has the best fans. They're the smartest fans. They eat more hoagies than any fans of any other, uh, <laughs> um, but they're, they, they, they really are passionate and they're great people. They're also, uh, you know, I've met so many salt of the earth people that were like characters out of Bruce Springsteen songs. I didn't know those people really existed growing up in the world I grew up in. And I met them and they are, the, they, the, the people particularly from Bruce's home area of New Jersey, they are the greatest people in America. Um, they have put up with the most shit for so many years, the worst economy, the most corrupt governments, a, a governor who sits off his own private beach. And yet they have a great joie de vivre about life. They're happy to be alive. And um, yeah, it, 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 we never would have been able to do any of this if the fans weren't as awesome as they are. Very true. Either would we. That yeah. is for sure. That sounds like I'm running for mayor of Freehold, New Jersey, <laughs> which I am not. But. No, but it's true. And I think of all the, you know, all the people around the world that, that we have known and continue to meet through this thing, you know, but the people we've lost, like Steve Jump, like mm. that guy was yeah. one of a kind. It still oh makes my God. me sad. I, I still refer to the Badlands brothers as the jumps, but really now it's only sure. Well, jump. I mean, not, I love Steve to, to death and um, rep bless his soul. But if I'm remembering correctly, it is the day of the second Christic show, the infamous day he drank 36 beers at lunch. <laughs> That's the day of that show. It's not the day after, it's the day of the show. Is it not? Am I remembering oh correctly? Wow. It's at some place on, we can't, yeah. I mean, you know, so that's before the show happened. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, some of the people were just, uh, an R larger than life. Larger than life. Um, yeah. You know, uh, that they, they, uh, they really are. When Eric, when you and I went to that Badlands conventions in, <laughs> and it wasn't oh, in man. Cheltenham, it was in Leicester. Leicester. Yeah, one was in Leicester and one was in, either Sheffield or Birmingham. And now I can't remember. But, uh, but yeah, it was uh, like, uh, it was, it was, uh, it, it felt very different to, to see that fanaticism expressed in people who had really unique accents and, um, uh, you smoked know, had, a lot. yeah, smoked a lot <laughs> yeah. of cigarettes and had never, um, but, but that was, uh, that was a great experience as well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Backstreets has had a lot of love over the world, and there's a lot of love to give to all the people who supported it. I mean, how many people over the years on Faith sent money in for a super sub, sent mm -hmm. 20 bucks into a magazine they didn't know if they'd get ever again, you know, in the early days, uh, and, um, you know, um, bought T-shirts from us rather than the local, you know, record shop. Yeah. And we, we still feel that support all the time. Like, you know, even though it's been years since, since a printed issue has come out, um, I still hear from so many people who are like, I don't really care. I go to your website every day and more often than not, you're telling me something new. You connect me to all this stuff. If I get a magazine, great. But like, I'm happy to, you know, support you as I have for 25 years or whatever it is. I was going to say that said, you know, we do want to get to a place where people aren't waiting for a magazine that ever comes, you know, and that that's been the, the big struggle of embracing the internet and embracing the age we live in 
and yet there's just still this thing that's hanging out there. So, you know. Yeah, but let me be give you a break there and rewrite your narrative in the way you're telling that story. Backstreet's Magazine isn't the printed thing. It is everything we're talking about here. It's the internet, it's the community. It's more than just having something in your hand. So it, it, uh, don't, don't put that judgment on it to some degree. It, uh, it, it, Backstreet's Magazine is alive and well every day. There's somebody um, who's checking in on, on uh, what the news is. So, yeah. It really is all about the passion. And, and Charlie, listening to you, it sounds like you have the same passion today that you had for this 40 years ago. I don't have the same knees, neither does uh, Bruce, but, uh, um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I have the same, it's not like your passion for that goes away. Um, you know, I, I uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't know that I have the same passion for the ability. It's hard to believe that you're going to listen and you're going to hear music that's going to change your life the way music does when you're 18, the way it was for me listening to um, Bob Dylan's Blood in the Tracks or way, the way Born to Run was, or even the way the Christic Institute is, it, it, or Nirvana's Nevermind. You know, you go to those, when's the last time you were completely blown away by new music, by any artist? That's a harder question for people as they, as they yeah. age. Yeah. Um, and I'll you know, tell you the letter to you did it for me. Maybe it was because it was in the middle of the pandemic and coincidentally, some of the songs really seemed to fit the moment, but letter to you really had an incredible impact on me. Well, when Bruce touches things, he, to, to, to Bruce's great strength, he, he writes to emotion and uh, when he gets, his music does, I mean, I've cried more to Bruce Springsteen songs in my life than any other artist probably. Um, and some of that is that it's brought up emotions in me. It's brought up things in, in my life. And uh, um, yeah, he, he can, he can, he can, he, the guy can tell a story in a song there. Yeah. And the fact that he's still able to touch those emotions is, is what I think is so amazing. You know, like for me, it was less letter to you and more Western stars that really hit me, uh, especially the title track. I'm just like, Jesus, he can still do this. He can still zero in on, uh, on certain things and maybe feel something that nobody else makes me feel, you know? And I went to Western Stars at a little theater in Seattle, which all three of these other guys have been to probably called the Crest Theater, which is uh, normally $3 to go to the movie. It's a, it's a dumpy sort of suburban theater, but they were, they, they were, it was a regular ticket for Letter to You, I mean, for Western Stars. There were 12 people in the theater, um, uh, other than my son, who was with me, all the other 10 people were all people who'd been subscribers to Backstreet's. <laughs> I, I knew them all. Um, that's and that's that long after the fact. Uh, that tells you something about, you know, that, yeah, it felt like going home. Yeah. Mm. I think we're just enormously fortunate that, you know, 2019 we had Western Stars and then last year we had Letter to You. And what a great post seventh inning stretch. I, that, was, that was two for two in my book with those two LPs. Um, you know, and we're not getting any younger, but the music is still compelling. Uh, I rue the day that I turned something on and I really don't like it, but so far so good. I mean, there are things I like more than others, but um, to have those two records in particular, uh, I think we're really lucky as fans and, and uh, chroniclers. Well, on top of that, you know, we were talking about Lynn Elder's, you know, treasured tomes and the bootleg CDs that we all bought. And now once a month, we get a show from the archives, you know, mixed from multi-tracks by John Altschiller and mastered by Gateway and something that's as good as any live album that he's ever put out before. And, you know, these are like unthinkable ideas when we started Backstreets or first started writing about this stuff or even even tracks, you know, in 99 <clears throat> is an unthinkable idea when we first start Backstreets. But we did care about those things. We, you know, talking about 
you know, whether it's the main point, which is Charlie is sort of talking about, or the Christic, like, my God, why don't they release this show? Well, guess what they did? You know, <laughs> it's right. finally, yeah. it has finally happened. And I think, you know, that's not about somewhere in here, the, the collective wisdom of the fans was always right. And that there was more value in the outtakes. There was more value in the live recordings than maybe was appreciated at the time. And time has proven that this is not just part of the desire to satiate the fans, but it is part of the legacy and that, that we are writing history. And I think about that with the archive releases about like, you know, it's part of the reason why they span, you know, are trying to span Bruce's career as best they can, because they are there to actually tell the story. Um, and, you know, the fact that all five, you know, all five seventy-eight radio broadcasts are now, you, you, we could all buy them in the next 10 seconds if we wanted to. I mean, that's just extraordinary. It is. I'm glad you brought that up because that still astounds me when I think that this this is happening monthly. And, you know, just for, for so many years, we wanted something like this. And, it, it, yeah, it's just kind of mind-boggling that, that it is happening. And when I see people who get a little ticked off or up in arms when there's a week's delay or something, I think, you know, we've waited decades for this stuff. You can wait another week. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that yeah, just gives them another people... week to interpret your tweets anyway. So I can't believe no one's figured this one out yet. This one, this one to me was a dead giveaway, but well, okay. Uh, unfortunately this won't air until after it's out, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> wait, his tweet was a dead giveaway. There's, there's one key word in there that nobody seems to have, uh, to responded to so kind of gives away all of them i mean like i can't wait to find out yes we We shall see yeah it's it's what i always find surprising is how people i'm sorry i got pissed off some 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 of our listeners here is that they really nitpick the sound quality it's like how many years did we buy you know charlie talked about buying the you know fire on the fingertips from you know the was it agora 73 or 4 or something and yeah, it was. It sounded horrible, and now you were getting straight from the multi-track mixed down by someone who knows what they're doing, and it's you're going to complain because the organ isn't loud enough in the left channel. Uh, that's just. I'm well, sorry. For that's those just... people, I probably have a copy of Lynn Elder's one-star bootleg <laughs> review called "High Bruce." Somebody put out a record out called "High Bruce." I think I have that in my closet on vinyl. <laughs> Isn't that Princeton uh, 78? uh, Whatever it is, don't, no one, yeah, we never need to mention it again. But yeah, I mean, yeah, there there always have been people that uh, are nitpicking. Um, No, Hi Bruce is uh, Milano, Italy, um, and uh, uh, 1985. I remember Uh, that one. Yeah, it's the in, uh, inferior version of the show. Yeah, definitely inferior. Yeah, I mean, but... this is—it's such a subjective thing. And by the way, it's not just subjective to the fans; it's subjective to the person who's mixing it, and the person who's mastering it, and the person who's giving notes on the mix. Like the, this sense that there is some like way that it's all supposed to be, and that anybody who's commenting kind of has the the perspective of well, like what this show is supposed to sound like. And it's funny, you know, even though we all know the, the 78 radio broadcasts, we, we don't know that that's how the show sounded. We just know that that's how the show was mixed when it went over the air. That doesn't mean that's what it sounded like in the room. The point is that every time somebody mixes a multi-track, it's going to be a little different. There's no getting around that distinction because it is a subjective process. And just because you always knew it to sound like A doesn't mean that A is how it was always supposed to sound. So yes, we are interpreting it through a a contemporary lens to a degree, but, you know, by and large, I think the, the, the live archive series releases have sounded quite extraordinary in most cases. And there's many, many shows I never thought we'd get to hear. Hey, which ones did you think we'd never get to hear? I, the first one that really shocked me, Flynn was London 81. Um, you know, I, I realized that you can trace back the, history of the knowledge of those things being recorded. Clinton Halen's book, our old pal, uh, mentions that those shows were recorded. But but for years, even even somebody who, you know, really monitored the live recording situation pretty closely and collected the bootlegs and all that good stuff, uh, until Clinton's book came out, I never believed that there were any 
multi-track tapes made on the European 81 tour. Then it turns out that they recorded multiple nights. And for me, you know, hearing Follow That Dream and hearing Johnny Bye Bye and, you know, the context of those shows to get a show from 81 from Europe that sounds that amazing that captures the European 81 tour is just, I just never thought we would. I thought they didn't exist. And when it came out and to this day, I'm just blown away by that recording. It's my, by far my favorite river recording. I would take it as much as I love the New Year's Eve show and I love the 29th of December, I would take the London 81 show any day over that. And Jonathan, I know you must have something to say about Europe 81. I think Eric said it. Um, you know, for me, that was when I became a fan. And I think that really plays into the experience is when you can go back through the archive series and say, that is when my 13 year old self was really getting into Bruce. And there was a pristine recording that you had no knowledge of that you can you can buy and you can download and you can share and you can, you know, uh, study it uh, and enjoy it and dance to it, uh, contextualize it. It's, you know, the only thing better would be if, uh, if we could get one more night, right? I, I also want to shout out, and it's funny that they're both London, but the, but the second Hammersmith. Um, you phenomenal. Know, we, yeah, phenomenal. We, yeah. It's just... We, we never really heard it in the way it was meant to be heard. You know, we, we got the first official release, of, the first night of Hammersmith with the Born to Run. In the postmortem of the Born to Run box, we got the video. But but the 20 is the 24th. I'm going from memory here. I think um, that's right. Yeah. 1024 is just absolutely extraordinary. And and kind of as a like snapshot of of Bruce at that time, I don't think there's a show you know, maybe what the main point is the exception, but like you pick 175 show that will absolutely blow your fucking mind. <laughs> I think it's that one. Honestly, that, that encore is an encore for the ages. And, and until, and I think this is a good, also always worth saying, it's been said a million times on the boards or whatever. Like part of the reason that we fetishize the shows that we have had on bootleg, the famous radio broadcast or whatever is because that was all we ever had. Right. So we think Passaic's greatest show of all time because we had Passaic. We didn't have the others. And I think this is a great example where the archive has said, guess what? There was another show that is one of the greatest shows of all time, and you just didn't know it because you just never heard it. Right. And I think uh, the 10 or 1124 really does that. I, I think there's a real recording bias in terms of how people want the shows that they want to hear. Uh for example, 5388, Roses and Broken Hearts is the, mm -hmm. is the bootleg CD. It's like, you know, yeah, it was a good show, but it's because we have this great recording that people seem to seem to migrate to. And, you know, I, I listen, just listening, just based on listening, I would say the, the, the Tacoma show is just a couple of days later were even better. Yeah, it's a little bit like I used to say, like, hey, tell me what was the favorite show you saw on the tour? Like, or where, which night did you like better, the first or the second night? They're like, oh, I love the first night. Where were your seats? Tenth row. Where were your seats for the second night? Behind the stage. Hmm. Funny that. <laughs> right. Funny that that's your favorite show. Um, and yeah, location you bias. also get caught up into it. Did you break up with your girlfriend that day? Yeah, did you sure. throw up? Did you have food poisoning? I mean... You know, uh, those did you things. Drink thirty six beers. You know. uh, exactly. <laughs> if you did, you thought it was even better. But um, you know, I was talking about that Hammersmith show with two people in the last month who were mm. who were there, and we're talking about how upset Bruce had been by the postering Press, of the theater, yeah. and oh. how much more damage he did to his hand ripping those off than any of us were aware, sort of seeing mm. it. And so playing what he played that next night is uh, some degree. I mean, the guy was injured on stage, which is, you know, Bruce is an unbelievable physical animal. Like mm -hmm. how that guy has been able to do what he did on stage so many hours for so long. There is no one in, I mean, James Brown, I, I, I saw a yeah. few times and he was awesome on stage, but uh, there has never been a live performer put that much out over the course of the physical no. stuff he put out. And, and uh, I, that I, I just can't, I, I still can't wrap my head around how great he is when he's on, on stage and how much energy he puts into it. So to this day, to this yeah. day. Yeah. 
And that's kind of what we started Backstreet's for to, to, you know, maybe say a coda to this. And, um, you know, it's, it's Backstreet started for me trying to tell people, this guy is great. You got to go see him. And, um, you know, bringing people to that show, this idea that maybe this magazine would pull people together at this event into an idea of community. It was a dark, rainy day. Most people threw away the copies they were given. If, if, uh, if you know, 3,000 were handed out, you know, 2,000 of them were trashed on the ground. And, um, and now, all these years later, um, in some ways, that argument is proven. It, it isn't an argument anymore. This guy is incredible live. And those nights that we're talking about and looking back on really were moments that um, were some of the, 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 the shiniest moments in all of rock and roll history. And we saw some of them. And I hope we get to see more. Amen. I, I think that that is the perfect capper to the evening. Uh, you, what you've done, I mean, as I said before, 16 years old on the East Coast, you brought Bruce to me. You know, I, I got to see him one night at the Meadowlands. Then I went home. I was like, how am I going to see this guy again? And there was this magazine out there that told me what I needed to know and, and introduced me to other people in the community. So just I, I thank you for that. Yes, thank you as well for someone from the D.C. area. So he was from New York, I'm from D.C. And finding that in the in Rockville, in the Rockville, Maryland record store just, I mean, changed, changed my life, to, to say the least. Well, so everybody who subscribed to the magazine or looked at the website changed all four of our lives. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there's no doubt about that. And it also gave us a friendship between the four of us that, that you know, me and my basement in Ravenna, didn't know I would uh, I would have compatriots and that love music as much as I did in my life. So yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so yeah, much. Thank you. Great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks to those guys so much. Charles R. Cross, Eric Flanagan, Jonathan Pont, and Chris Phillips. That was just such a treat for us. We could talk to them for like five more episodes. <laughs> yeah, we we totally could. I could have I could listen to them talk uh, all night and still not get enough. I mean, they have some of the best stories from the last forty years, not just about Bruce, but about Bruce's fans and their interactions with them. And it's it's just it's just exhilarating to to be in the conversation with them. It really the history of like E Street Nation is embodied in, in the four of them. It, it, they really are sort of the symbol of Springsteen fandom. Uh, that is true. That is very true. They, uh, I mean, it's the, it's the fanzine that has stuck around the longest. I mean, sure they're, they're not printing very much these days, but the website is it's updated almost daily. So you you always get a get some new Bruce content, and it's just it's just fun. It's just a fun thing to be to be involved with. Yeah, I, especially Eric's stories about being out on the road in '88. That's so much fun. And and you and I, first of all, you and I, of course, know each other through Bruce and his music. I met your lovely wife through Bruce and his music. There are so many other people in my life who I've met through Bruce and his music. It's it's a wonderful community, and it just it, it, uh, hopefully it came through. That's how all six of us feel. Yes, I I, th I think it did, and and you're right. Uh, without Bruce, uh, my all my relationships would be so much different, <laughs> to say the least. Obviously, I, as you pointed out, I wouldn't have met my wife uh, without Bruce. So, uh, Bruce, hey, thank you, thank you for yes. doing doing what you did and doing what you continue to do. That uh, that is perhaps the most incredible thing about it. As we were talking about Western Stars and Letter to You in there, the level that this man continues at into his seventies. It's 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 phenomenal. And and as you say, I hope it continues. And, and we do know there was additional word today that there is going to be a 2022 tour. It'll probably run at the 2023. So there's going to be a lot of stuff for us to cover moving forward, I think. Yes. And I was just going to say he's 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 doing it every night on on Broadway as we speak. And, you know, and in, I haven't heard a single negative review of, of, of that show. So Nor he's still I. bringing it every night. Totally. And hopefully there's going to be a release this fall. Now to set everything up, this is the last episode of our season as we did last year. If there's any breaking news, we're certainly going to cover it. As I mentioned earlier in the show, we are going to do mini episodes when the archives come out. Hopefully July will be out shortly. 
And other than that, the last thing I think for us to say is we just really, really appreciate everyone listening to the show. It really means a lot to us. Yes, it does. Uh, Hal gives me the numbers, and I'm always, I'm always, I'm always very surprised to to hear uh, how how many people are are listening, and and Hal mentioned the charts uh, to me earlier about uh, we're doing very well in Sweden and, and Ireland, and it's just it's just amazing to me. I'm I'm just blown away by how much support we've gotten yeah, over the last it, couple of years. Yeah, we really do thank everyone, and and with that, that brings season two of the None But the Brave podcast to a close. Let's do our wrap up. None But the Brave podcast is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. It's a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you want to interact with us on Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. On the web, we're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McClain saying, saying thanks again for listening. We really appreciate it, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.